Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there is any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on God. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God, is dis God despised them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, we are working our way through the Psalms, as you know. So we are in Psalm 53, which forms a little block subset of Psalm 50. 51, 52, and 53, so we keep on having to read them kind of uh, together. And the picture is unfortunately becoming darker and darker and dark. Uh, this is the dark side of humanity that we are looking at here. So remember, Psalm 50 started about that Israel was worshipping God only in, in action. They brought sacrifices, but their hearts were far away from God. They could not... A sense of delighting in him. They don't want to know him in one sense. They just go through the motions. Psalm 51 then picks up on the true uh, covenant partner, David, where David really keeps on saying, God, I want to see your face. I want to be with you. I don't bring sacrifices uh, per se. The sacrifice you're looking for is a broken and a contrite heart. Uh, that is what you are after. Uh, I can Bring my contrite and broken heart to you. Only you can heal me. Only you can forgive me. Only you can wash me. Only you can cleanse me. Only you can recreate me, uh, says David. I am in real need uh, of your incredible grace. Uh, to, for you to act according to your kindness, to your uh, goodness. Because in myself, I don't have anything good. Then last week we looked at Psalm 52 where... It says, well, you know, the reality is, is that uh, human beings uh, are often caught out uh, by themselves by what they say or what they don't say. Human beings often kind of show their hearts by what comes out of their mouths. Uh, all you need to do is, is to listen to yourself, uh, then you'll discover something of the brokenness within inside you. Um, and uh, that, was, that whole song was about... Just for in case you thought you are still excluded, uh, Psalm 53 is written so that no one will feel out. All right. <laughs> that everybody will be included. And this psalm picks up. So yeah, it's an interesting context. Difficult to know again. The previous psalms had a little bit of a historical background. There was a little bit of a historical introduction. This psalm doesn't have one. Um, it's a psalm of David. By now you know that doesn't mean necessarily David wrote it. Uh, but it's a psalm that takes David as king into consideration. It either reflects on his life. It's either written as he is the Davidic king. One of those difficult ones. There are some interesting stuff going on here in the psalm. And if you want to go, you can go and read. If you want to echo, you know, the Bible echoes. Psalm 14 is the echo of Psalm 53. It's almost word for word, exactly the same, except for a little word in, in verse 1 and uh, verse 5. Uh, two phrases that is different. 
And the rest of the psalm is exactly the same. So it's almost like, you know, maybe they forgot about it. Or maybe God wants us to hear this more than once, um, so that we might truly hear it. Uh, so that's very interesting. So if you've got nothing to do uh, while you've got power outages this afternoon, uh, go and read Psalm 14. And that will give you a slightly different angle, but it's almost exactly the same. So, David is writing, uh, uh, if he's writing this, uh, difficult to know if this is a reflection on Israel's later life, especially if you look at the last uh, uh, verse, it seems to, it's looking into the future um, for Israel. But David had experiences of the reality of what is going on here. And that's why I think verse 5, when we get there, will, will be interesting to just pick up. But David is really writing about the fact that here you have this unique problem uh, of called the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, interestingly enough, uh, there are five words for fool in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, we are, have only one word, fool. Um, but there are actually five different kinds of fools in the scriptures. And you want to rather be one of the first four than the fifth one. Guess which one is being referred to here? <laughs> the fifth one. The Nabal. The constant, steadfast fool. There is also a figure, a character in 1 Samuel with the name of Nabal. Uh, and he is a steadfast fool. And he actually uh, goes up against David uh, and uh, is trying to get rid of David when David has doing, been doing him good. But here, this word really means for all intents and purposes, this person is... <laughs> from a human perspective, beyond hope. The first fool is your naive fool that we all start out with when you're young. You're inexperienced. You're an inexperienced fool. The scriptures talks about that. Then there's the silly fool. You know, when you run about 12, 13, you make a joke about everything, and everything is funny, and you say stupid things, and you get yourself into trouble. That's the silly fool. Uh, then you get the sensual fool, uh, which is actually the word most used in the scriptures when it uses the word fool. It's the person who lives by their senses. Their senses are the only bits of information that they believe is true and is stable and is constant. It's called the sensual fool. Then you get the scoffing fool, which not only thinks uh, their senses tells them everything about reality, they actually scoff at anything else that there's. So that's the scoffing fool. So they are a bit more... Uh, vocal, I guess, about it, and then you get Nabal. Then you get this fool. Because this fool is talking to himself in his heart, and he is saying there is no God. Now, this is not your classic atheist that you're going to meet somewhere. There weren't classic atheists in the, near, in the ancient Near Eastern world. Everybody, in one sense, had an awareness of gods and God and stuff like that. Here's the person who inside in himself says, I don't care, I don't long for God, I don't think he's important, I think there's nothing to do with him. Uh, he's completely locked up in himself. In his heart, he says, no God, actually there is, there is, it's not in the text, it's just no God. I will live life my way, uh, the way that I think is best, and this is what you find. There will be a corruption, an inner problem. It's in his heart is where the problem starts. In his heart, he will start to show it out. And it says, and their ways are vile. They will misrepresent reality. They will make themselves the be-all and end-all of life. And they misrepresent reality that they are only part of life. They are not life. 
Um, and that there's a much bigger deal, as JJ has already told us, about cosmoses and galaxies and stuff. Uh, they are almost oblivious to it. They live as if they are the only one. And then it says, there is no one who does good. The translation is a little bit weak. It should be, there is no one who constantly does what is good. Because you will find, if you actually bump into an atheist, most atheists that I've bumped into in my experience are pretty good people, pretty moral people, people who want to do what is good in the natural human level of doing good. Um, I haven't found too many atheists, self-proclaimed conscious atheists, that are absolutely debauched. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you found some. I have never met one of those. Most of the atheists that are self-proclaimed are actually normally fairly good people, uh, but they live as if we are the it. All right, so on one hand, you feel like, whoo, I'm not like that, hey? You feel relieved? Don't be too relieved for too long. All right. Verse 2, changes. So even though there are humans that never think of God, never wonder about God, never long for God, never have the awareness that somebody must have made this massive reality that we're living in. Um, he says, well, this is what God is doing. Even though man may not look to God, God is always looking to man. God always seeks after man, even though man may not seek after God. And that is what he's going to tell us now. Actually, that none of us really do. God looks down from heaven on all mankind. Isn't that funny? He looks down. Yeah. Down on us from where is that? 33 million trillion. I mean, fascinating. You actually get a similar picture when God, uh, when mankind builds this, you remember this, uh, this massive tower that want to reach into heaven. And it says, and God looked down to see what they are doing. They think they are building this massive thing. They are big, they are important. And God looks down. But God looks and he says he's looking for something specific. He sees if there's anyone who understands. Is there anyone who will follow the facts to its logical conclusion? Who constantly again, the word again must actually need to put it in there, constantly look to follow the facts so that they may lead you back to God. Who actually therefore constantly seeks God alone. But God is after us, are there human beings who constantly are following the facts, trying to figure it out, and are constantly therefore seeking God? And then this is what God says. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. And just in case you missed it, not even one. If this is not the awareness that you have about yourself, you are most likely like the fool in verse 1 who says there is no God. Are you aware of the fact that you do not consistently follow the facts, consistently see God, and consistently do what is good? So this is God's verdict. I mean, the question is, what is your verdict on yourself? God says, when I look down, I don't find anyone that does that. Not even one. You all know this. Paul picks this up in Romans, and he um, expands on this. And he literally quotes the first three verses of the psalm uh, in 
Ramasri, when he talks about the reality, the problem of mankind, that mankind, here's the difficulty, isn't it? What makes us corrupt is not that we do everything as bad as we possibly can. We just do it when it suits us. This is the problem. That makes us even more evil than if we would do evil all the time without fail. We decide when we are going to do good and when we are going to do evil. And the one good we don't do is we don't consistently follow the facts towards God and don't consistently seek Him. And there's not even one person that God could find that is doing this. You're feeling good about yourself. Hard message to accept. Hard to believe that's true of me. Hard to believe it's true of my children. Hard to believe this is true of every single human being that has ever lived on this earth, that that is what they are like. Very difficult, isn't it? And if you keep the two psalms together, all you need to do is to listen to yourself and to listen to what other people are saying, and they will tell you, without fail, that that is actually what they are like. So, Jade has already referred to uh, the thing we spoke about on Friday. I thought, fascinating. I actually got the little transcript. Now, I, I would love to have shown you the picture because, you know, pictures and words speaks more. He's got this nice voice. I don't know if it's Carl Sagan's own voice or whose voice it is. But he does this thing called the pale blue dot. If you mean, so maybe write it down there, the pale blue dot. And just go and listen to it again. Because he gives you these images and he kind of narrates it. And he takes you through this reality. And so, apparently in 1990, I don't know how he did it, but he asked the Voyager uh, telescope to turn around and take a picture. You know, and it was 6 billion kilometers away from the Earth. I mean, it's almost, almost where your, your thing was, not quite, but close. And uh, in one of the beams that is caught on the um, Voyager, there's a line that lies like that. And there's a little pale blue dot. I mean, you, you need almost imagination to see the thing. It literally is a pixel in this massive picture, and that is the Earth. And Carl Sagan is an atheist. Right? Now listen to what he says, and he captures so much. He's obviously coming from a different perspective, but I want you just to hear how profoundly accurate he is and how profoundly sad it is, what he's saying. All right, I'm just going to read it to you. He says, look again at that dot. That's here... That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you ever know, and everyone who has ever you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering. Thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager. Every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, only they are corrupt, <laughs> every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner, in the history of our species, lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. 
The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatred. Our posturings, um, our, no, I can't read my own handwriting. Our imagined self-importance, the delusions that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by uh, their point uh, uh, by this point of, of light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. <laughs> he spots it so well and then he veers away. The earth is, only, is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly, the foolishness, of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny little world. To me, he says, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve life on earth, on this pale blue dot. The only home we've ever known. Carl Sagan, 1940, uh, 1994. You catch it? Mm -hmm. He spots it so well. We are little pixels on a little pixel. And we do exactly what this text is. We are vile. We are corrupt. We think we will make it if we can kill more, lie more, cheat more on this little pixel floating in this past. And then he says, the only hope that I have is we will save ourselves. That's the sadness. He gets it absolutely right, isn't it? And then he doesn't get it right at all. Because he doesn't understand the reality that actually there is a God that has made all of this. And so verse 4 kind of picks up. He says, do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though they eat bread. That's what you've just been reading. They never call on God. They have got no awareness, even for a moment, that maybe I, the only hope we have is to call for somewhere out there to come and save us on this little pixel from ourselves. And then he says in verse 5, But, they, but they, they are overwhelmed with dread where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attack you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. Fascinating little thing. So he says, people, when they don't actually love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength, often show that in how they treat other human beings. And especially God's people. That's what he seems to be saying. There's a connection between what we do with God and what we do with one another. 
And we've seen that so often in the scriptures. So he's saying, here's the really sad reality about us, is that that's what we are like. We actually use people as if they are bread. They're just a commodity that we take for ourselves, and we talk to them as if they are nothing, we treat them as if they are nothing, and that's what has been happening to Israel as well. And so suddenly this psalm indicates, but there's a, there's a my people, there's the Nabal, there's, everybody does what is wrong, there's not one person who does what is right all the time, and yet there's a my people. So what is that difference between the Nabal fool, who says in his heart there's no God, and the David, who says, well, there's nothing good that is in me, what is the difference? Well, the difference is exactly that he has got some understanding somewhere along the line of God. <laughs> and he doesn't tell us exactly what it is. So this verse 5 is an interesting verse. Uh, David uh, is writing the psalm in such a way that he's not objectifying it only to the enemies of Israel that is out there. These are also enemies of God that is in Israel. David experienced that firsthand as he was fleeing from Saul. And at one stage, David was encircled by Saul's camp. He was in a cave, and Saul and all his men were sitting there, and David sneaked out and stole Saul's uh, uh, sword, cut off a bit of his thing, and he sneaks away. And at that time, Saul was terrified out of his wits, because he suddenly realized he could have been killed. And David is right, and he kind of repents and says he's sorry, and then the next day he tries and kills David again. David is saying, this has happened in Israel's history a couple of times, that God intervenes and brings about dread and saves Israel from the brink of disaster because God is the one who looks after those who actually does what verse 6 is really saying. Oh, that salvation, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. So the difference between the fool and a bowl and everybody else is not that we are any better than them. The difference is that you call on the Lord to save. That's the difference. There's a degree difference, I guess, sometimes, but that's not the issue. Since no one does it, the only one who actually says, God, you're the only one who can save me. Salvation must come from Zion. Salvation must come from where you have made yourself to dwell, and salvation must be for us. Because if you don't do anything, what we as humans do, we will never, ever, ever, ever get there. Because, unfortunately, we are all relatively good. But none of us are good all the time, consistently. Our only hope is that you will actually bring salvation from Zion. When God restores His people, when God brings all things and restores all things back to its proper way, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Then there will be joy. When God intervenes, when God does something, which is obviously in one sense what God has started to do so clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where he said, I will show you what a human looks like. A human that always does what is good. Always loves. Always glorifies me. Always knows about me. That's what God. So God has brought that salvation in Christ Jesus. He's brought salvation from Zion and God is restoring people as they become aware that there is no hope for us. So because I call on God that He saves me, is that God has promised to save as I call on Him. Is that weird? God is the initiator. God is the one who brings life 
to us. And so I just want to read one or two passages from the New Testament that just summarizes this incredible thing. So here is the awareness, the depth of our brokenness is seen in the wonder of the need of God to do something. Salvation must come from Zion. Salvation cannot come from me. I can't actually tell God, okay, next time I won't do it. I can't bargain with him. He says, you have to do it. The anticipation that you will do it because you have promised it. You will restore all things. There's a great deep joy that God is going to do what God has promised because God is the only one who's not like us. He's the only one who always does what he says and he always says what he does. And so Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, Nicholas referred to that, which is fantastic. Listen to chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. David describes the Greek world. David describes the Jewish world. Okay, sorry, Paul describes the Greek world. Paul describes the Jewish world. Paul describes himself. Then he says, but, big but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That handiwork is an interesting word. It's the word poema. And if you know what it means, it means poetry. We are God's poetry. God is speaking, and as we resonate with God, as we receive Christ Jesus, as we receive His grace, He actually starts to recreate us He's writing poetry with us so that we will go and show forth that he alone is the one that can actually bring about the life that we all are hankering after in one sense, but want to grab it in our own way. <coughs> this psalm kind of brings this whole thing to an end. If there's going to be any hope for mankind, it has to, and it can only be because of what God has done. It's promised in Psalm 53 and really ultimately fulfills for us in Christ Jesus. To the extent that you understand the joy or your deep need, to that extent you'll be joyful that Jesus Christ has noticed you and that he's come to save you and to give you life. And so when we go into the world, we never look down our short noses at people. Because we know that behind the enemy, the enemy that has been talked to, there is satanic powers. That Jesus Christ is broken. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross while these people are crucified and say, Father, forgive them. For they have got absolutely no idea what they are doing. And so when we look at the world and we see its fallenness, we don't say it's not fallen. <laughs> we say, wow, it is 
probably more than what we can see. The only hope for me and for everybody else is exactly as somehow I need to bring them to the understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is no hope in humanity. If humans have been doing what Carl Sagan is saying, we have been killing and slaughtering one another all the time. And he says, my best hope is that we're going to be kind to one another. I feel a deep sadness for him that he's got such unbelievable insight and yet in one sense no insight at all. He cannot see that there is no hope that you're going to call human beings to become better all by themselves. We literally need supernatural help which we get through Jesus Christ and the Spirit. And that is how we can be in relationship with God. Which is what Psalm 50 started out with. Psalm 51 tells us he has a personal testimony. Psalm 52, watch out because you are deceiving and being deceived so easily and you never know what's going to happen. Because the problem is here, none of us have the capacity, neither the willingness to follow all the facts to lead us back to God consistently and persistently. God has got to do something. And that's what he's come to do in Christ Jesus. He has promised that he will save us because he's full of grace and that he's full of mercy and that he's full of kindness. And so here's this funny thing. This psalm should humble you if you needed to be humbled. On the other hand, it will lift you up. So you are worse than what you think you are. I'm seeing only one smile, two smiles. And there, there they come, here they come. Shocking, isn't it? You are not worse than what, I'm not worse than what you think I am. I'm worse than what I think I am. Yet, in Christ Jesus, I am more loved, more accepted, more forgiven than I could ever, ever imagine. That's what the psalm is driving you to. Here's the weird, humble joy. And the joy there again, rejoice. It's dancing in a circle. So we almost got it right this morning. It was a bit slow. You know? Dance in a circle. And uh, go mad with gladness, which is an inner flourishing. So the heart that says there's no God has got an inner darkness and beautification. <clears throat> the heart that says only God can say brings a new flourishing from the inside out. And as we've seen, it actually helps us to resonate with God so that we become new poetry that God is writing through us as we allow the truth of both those realities to resonate in our ears, in our minds, in our hearts, in our worlds, in our souls. Is that left to myself, I'm done. But I'm not left to myself because God has intervened in Christ Jesus and therefore I have hope and therefore I have a song and therefore I want to tell everybody about him, not so much about me. Good news, deep, sad news, deep good news. Seems like they always go together. May God indeed grant us all a greater understanding of the magnitude of His goodness. Let's stand and let's sing together our last song.